Section 5 of England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. This is a LibreVox recording. All LibreVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibreVox.org. Recording by Julie Burks. The World's Story, Volume 10. England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 5. A Charge with Prince Rupert, 1643, by Thomas Wentworth Higginson. The struggle between King Charles and his Parliament broke into open warfare in 1642. In the early part of the Civil War, success lay with the Royalists, chiefly because their soldiers were better fitted for war and their generals were of much better training and quality. The most able cavalry leader was Prince Rupert, nephew of King Charles, the editor. Prince Rupert, Prince Robert, or Prince Robber, for by all these names was he known, was the one formidable military leader on the royal side. He was not a statesman, for he was hardly yet a mature man. He was not, in the grandest sense, a hero, yet he had no quality that was not heroic. Chivalrous, brilliant, honest, generous, not dissolute, nor bigoted, nor cruel. He was still a royalist for the love of royalty, and a soldier for the love of war, and in civil strife there can hardly be a more dangerous character. Through all the blunt periods of his military or civil proclamations, we see the proud, careless boy fighting for fighting's sake, and always finding his own side the right one. He could not have much charity for the most generous opponents, he certainly had none at all for those who, as he said, printed malicious and lying pamphlets against him almost every morning, in which he found himself saluted as a nest of perfidious vipers, a night-flying dragon prince, a flap-dragon, a caterpillar, a spider, and a butter-box. He was the king's own nephew, great-grandson of William the Silent, and son of that Elizabeth Stuart, from whom all the modern royal family of England descends. His sister was the renowned Princess Palatine, the one favorite pupil of Descartes and the chosen friend of Leibniz, Malebranche, and William Penn. From early childhood he was trained to war. We find him at fourteen, pronounced by his tutors fit to command an army. At fifteen, bearing away the palm in one of the last of the tournaments, at sixteen, fighting beside the young Turin in the Low Countries. At nineteen, heading the advanced guard in the army of the Prince of Orange. And at twenty-three, we find him appearing in England, the day before the royal standard was reared, and the day after the king lost Coventry. This training made him a general, not, as many have supposed, a mere cavalry captain, he was one of the few men who have shown great military powers on both land and sea. He was a man of energy unbounded, industry inexhaustible, and the most comprehensive and systemic forethought. It was not merely that, as Warwick said, he put that spirit into the king's army that all men seemed resolved. Not merely that, always charging at the head of his troops, he was never wounded, and that, seen more service than any of his compeers. He outlived them all. But even in these early years, before he was generalissimo, 
the parliament deliberately declared the whole war to be managed by his skill labor and industry and his was the only name habitually printed in capitals in the puritan newspapers he had to create soldiers by enthusiasm and feed them by stratagem to toil for a king who feared him and against a queen who hated him to take vast responsibilities of loan accused of negligence if he failed reproached with license if he succeeded against him he had the wealth of london entrusted to men who were great diplomatists though new to power and great soldiers though they had never seen a battlefield till middle life on his side he had only unmanageable lords and penniless gentlemen who gained victories by daring and then wasted them by license his troops had no tents no wagons no military stores they used those of the enemy clarendon says that the king's cause labored under an incurable disease of want of money and that the only cure for starvation was a victory to say therefore that rupert's men never starved is to say that they always conquered which at this early period was true he was the best shot in the army and the best tennis player among the courtiers and pepsis called him the boldest attacker in england for personal courage seemingly without reverence or religion he yet ascribed his defeats to satan and at the close of a letter about a marauding expedition requested his friend will legg to pray for him versed in all the courtly society of the age chosen interpreter for the wooing of young prince charles and la grande mademoiselle and mourning in purple with the royal family for marie de medicis he could yet mingle in any conceivable company and assume any part he penetrated the opposing camp at dunsmore heath as an apple seller and the hostile town of warwick as a dealer in cabbage nets and the pamphleteers were never weary of describing his disguises he was charged with all manner of offences even to slain children with cannibal intent and only very carelessly disavowed such soft impeachments but no man could deny that he was perfectly true to his word he never forgot one whom he had promised to protect and if he had promised to strip a man's goods he did it to the utmost farthing and so must his pledge of vengeance be redeemed to-night and so riding eastward with the dying sunlight behind him and the quiet chiltern hills before through air softened by the gathering coolness of these midsummer eves beside clover fields and hedges of wild roses and ponds white with closing water lilies and pastures sprinkled with meadows sweet like foam he muses only of the clash of sword and the sharp rattle of shot and all the passionate joys of the coming charge the long and picturesque array winds onward crossing chiselhampton bridge not to be recrossed so easily avoiding thame with its church and abbey where lord general essex himself is quartered unconscious of their march and the cavaliers are soon riding beneath the bases of the wooded hills towards postcombe near tetsworth the enemy's first outpost they halt till evening the horsemen dismount the flagon and the foraging bag are opened the blackjack and the manchet go around healths are drunk to successes past 
and Glory's future, to Queen Mary's eyes and to Prince Rupert's dog. A few hours bring darkness. They move on eastward through the lanes, avoiding, when possible, the Roman highways. They are sometimes fired upon by a picket, but make no return, for they are hurrying past the main quarters of the enemy. In the silence of the summer night, they stealthily ride miles and miles through a hostile country, the renegade Uri guiding them. At early dawn they see, through the misty air, the low hamlet of Postcombe, where the beating up of the enemy's quarters is to begin. A hurried word of command, the infantry halt. The cavalry close and sweep down like nighthawks upon the sleeping village. Safe enough, one would have supposed, with the whole parliamentary army lying between it and Oxford to protect it from danger. Yet the small party of Puritan troopers awake in their quarters with Rupert at the door. It is well for them that they happen to be picked men and have promptness, if not vigilance, forming hastily. They secure a retreat westward through the narrow street, leaving but few prisoners behind them. As hastily the prisoners are swept away with the stealthy troop who have other work before them, and before half the startled villagers have opened their lattices, the skirmish is over. Long before they can send a messenger up over the hills to sound the alarm bells of Stoken Church, the swift gallop of the cavaliers has reached Chinor, two miles away, and the goal of the foray. The compact, strongly built village is surrounded. They form a parallel line behind the houses on each side, leaping fences and ditches to their posts. They break down the iron chains stretched nightly across each end of the street and line it from end to end. Rupert, Will Legg, and the forlorn Hope, dismounting, rush in upon the quarters, sparing only those who surrender. In five minutes the town is up. The awakened troopers fight as desperately as their assailants, some on foot, some on horseback. More and more of Rupert's men rush in. They fight through the straggling street of the village, from the sign of the ram at one end to that of the crown at the other, and then back again. The citizens join against the invaders. The prentices rush from their attics. Hasty barricades of carts and harrows are formed in the streets. Long musket barrels are thrust from the windows. Dark groups cluster on the roofs, and stones begin to rattle on the heads below, together with phrases more galling than stones, hurled down by women. Cursed dogs, devilish cavaliers, papist traitors. In return, the intruders shoot at the windows indiscriminately, storm the doors, fire the houses. They grow more furious and spare nothing. Some townspeople retreat within the church doors. The doors are beaten in. Women barricade them with woolen packs and fight over them with muskets, barrel to barrel. Outside, the troopers ride round and round the town, seizing or slaying all who escape. Within, Desperate men still aim from their windows, though the houses on each side are in flames. Melting lead pours down from the blazing roofs, while the drum still beats and the flag still advances. It is struck down presently. Tied to a broken pike staff, it rises again, while a chaos of armor and plumes 
black and orange, blue and red, torn laces and tossing feathers, powder stains and blood stains, fills the dewy morning with terror and opens the June Sunday with sin. Three score and more of the townspeople are slain. Six score are led away at the horses' sides, bound with ropes, to be handed over to the infantry for keeping. Some of these prisoners, even of the armed troopers, are so ignorant and unwarlike as yet that they know not the meaning of the word quarter, refusing it when offered, and imploring mercy instead. Others are little children, for whom a heavy ransom shall yet be paid. Others, cheaper prisoners, are ransomed on the spot. Some plunder has also been taken, but the soldiers look longingly on the larger wealth that must be left behind in the hurry of retreat. Treasures that otherwise no trooper of Rupert's would have spared. Scarlet cloth, bedding, saddles, cutlery, ironware, hats, shoes, hops for beer, and books to sell to the Oxford scholars. But the daring which has given them victory now makes their danger. They have been nearly twelve hours in the saddle and have fought two actions. They have twenty-five miles to ride with the whole force of the enemy in their path. They came unseen in the darkness. They must return by daylight and with the alarm already given. Stoken church bell has been pealing for hours. The troop from Postcombe has fallen back on Tetsworth, and everywhere in the distant vignettes are hurrying from post to post. The perilous retreat begins. Ranks are closed. They ride silently. Many a man leads a second horse beside him, and one bears in triumph the great captured Puritan standard with its five buff Bibles on a black ground. They choose their course more carefully than ever, seek the by-lanes, and swim the rivers with their swords between their teeth. At one point in their hushed progress, they hear the sound of rattling wagons. There is a treasure train within their reach, worth twenty-one thousand pounds, and destined for the parliamentary camp, but the thick woods of the children's have sheltered it from pursuit, and they have not a moment to waste. They are riding for their lives. Already the gathering parties of roundheads are closing upon them nearer and nearer as they approach the most perilous point of the wild expedition their only return path across the churwell chiselhampton bridge percy and o'neill with difficulty hold the assailants in check the case grows desperate at last and rupert stands at bay on childgrove field it is sunday morning june eighteenth sixteen forty three the early church bells are ringing all over Oxfordshire, dying away in the soft air among the sunny English hills, while Englishmen are drawing near one another with hatred in their hearts, dying away as on that other Sunday eight months ago, when Baxter, preaching near Edge Hill, heard the sounds of battle and disturbed the rest of his saints by exclaiming, To the fight! But here are no warrior preachers, no bishops praying in surplices on the one side, no dark-robed divines preaching on horseback on the other, no king in glittering armor, no Tudor Harvey in peaceful meditation beneath the hedge, pondering on the circulation of the blood, with hotter blood flowing so near him. All these were to be seen at Edgehill, but not here. This smaller skirmish rather turns our thoughts 
to cisatlantic associations its date suggests bunker hill its circumstances lexington for this also is a marauding party with the percy among its officers brought to a stand by a half-armed and an angry peasantry rupert sends his infantry forward to secure the bridge and a sufficient body of dragoons to line the mile and a half of road between them the remainder of the troops being drawn up at the entrance of a cornfield several hundred acres in extent and lying between the villages and the hills the puritans take a long circuit endeavoring to get to windward of their formidable enemy a point judged as important during the seventeenth century in a land fight as in a naval engagement they have with them some light field pieces artillery being the only point of superiority they yet claim but these are not basilisks nor falconets nor culverns culivre culevres nor drakes tracons nor warning pieces they are the leathern guns of gustavus adolphus made of light cast iron and bound with ropes and leather the round-head dragoons dismounted line a hedge near the cavaliers and plant their swine feathers under cover of their fire the horse advance in line matches burning as they advance one or two dash forward at risk of their lives flinging off the orange scarves which alone distinguish them in token that they desert to the royal cause prince rupert falls back into the lane a little to lead the other forces into his ambush of dragoons these tactics do not come naturally to him however nor does he like the practice of the time that two bodies of cavalry should ride up within pistol-shot of each other and exchange a volley before they charge he rather anticipates on his style of operations the famous order of frederick the great the king hereby forbids all officers of cavalry on pain of being broke with ignominy ever to allow themselves to be attacked in any action by the enemy but the prussians must always attack them accordingly he restrains himself for a little while chafing beneath the delay and then a soldier or two being suddenly struck down by the fire he exclaims yea this insolency is not to be endured the moment is come god and queen mary shouts rupert charge in one instant that motionless mass becomes a flood of lava down in one terrible sweep it comes silence behind it and despair before no one notices the beauty of that brilliant chivalrous array all else is merged in the fury of the wild gallop spurs are deep reins free blades grasped heads bent the excited horse feels the heel no more than he feels the hand the uneven ground breaks their ranks no matter they feel that they can ride down the world rupert first clears the hedge he is always first then comes the captain of his lifeguard then the whole troop jumble after them in a spectator's piquant phrase the dismounted puritan dragoons break from the hedges and scatter for their lives but the cavalry bear the charge better than they have done since worcester that is now they stand it an instant then they did not stand it at all the prince takes them in flank and breaks them in pieces at the first encounter the very wind of the charge shatters them horse and foot carbines and petronels 
swords and pole-axes are mingled in one struggling mass rupert and his men seem refreshed not exhausted by the weary night they seem incapable of fatigue they spike at the guns as they cut down the gunners and if any escape it is because many in both armies wear the same red scarfs one puritan surrounded by the enemy shows such desperate daring that rupert bids release him at last and sends afterwards to essex to ask his name one cavalier bends with a wild oath to search the pockets of a slain enemy it is his own brother o'neill slays the standard-bearer and thus restores to his company the right to bear a flag a right they had lost at hopton heath leg is taken prisoner and escapes Uri proves himself no coward though a renegade and is trusted to bear to oxford the news of the victory being raised to knighthood in return for a victory of course it is nothing in england can yet resist these high-born dissolute reckless cavaliers of rupert's i have seen them running up walls twenty feet high said the engineer consulted by the frightened citizens of dorchester these defences of yours may possibly keep them out half an hour darlings of triumphant aristocracy they are destined to meet with no foe that can match them until they recoil at last before the plebeian pikes of the london train bands nor can even rupert's men claim to monopolize the courage of the king's party the brilliant show troop of lord bernard stuart comprising the young nobles having no separate command a troop which could afford to indulge in all the gorgeousness of dress since their united incomes clarendon declares would have exceeded those of the whole puritan parliament led by their own desire the triumphant charge at edgehill and threescore of their bodies were found piled on the spot where the royal standard was captured and rescued not less faithful were the marquis of newcastle's lambs who took their name from the white woolen clothing which they refused to have dyed saying that their heart's blood would die it soon enough and so it did only thirty survived the battle of marston moor and the bodies of the rest were found in the field ranked regularly side by side in death as in life but here at charlgrove field no such fortitude of endurance is needed the enemy are scattered and as rupert's cavaliers are dashing on and their accustomed headlong pursuit a small but fresh force of puritan cavalry appears behind the hedges and charges on them from the right two troops hastily gathered and in various garb they are headed by a man in middle life and of noble aspect once seen he cannot easily be forgotten but seen he will never be again and for the last time rupert and hampton meet face to face the foremost representative men of their respective parties they scarcely remember perhaps that there are ties and coincidences in their lives at the marriage of rupert's mother the student hampton was chosen to write the oxford epithalium exulting in the prediction of some noble offspring to follow such a union rupert is about to be made general-in-chief of the cavaliers hampton is looked to by all as the future general-in-chief of the puritans rupert is the nephew of the king hampton the cousin of cromwell and as the former is believed to be aiming at the crown so the latter is the only possible rival of cromwell for the protectorate 
the eyes of all being fixed upon him as their pater patriae but in the greater qualities of manhood how far must hampton be placed above the magnificent and gifted rupert in a congress of natural noblemen for such do the men of the commonwealth appear he must rank foremost it is difficult to avoid exaggeration in speaking of these men men whose deeds vindicate their words and whose words are unsurpassed by greek or roman fame men whom even hume can only criticize for a mysterious jargon which most of them did not use and for a vulgar hypocrisy which few of them practised let us not underrate the self-forgetting loyalty of the royalists the duke of newcastle laying at the king's feet seven hundred thousand pounds and the marquis of worcester a million but the sublimer poverty and abstinence of the parliamentary party deserve a yet loftier meed vain surrendering an office of thirty thousand pounds a year to promote public economy hutchinson refusing a peerage and a fortune as a bribe to hold nottingham castle a little while for the king elliot and pym bequeathing their families to the nation's justice having spent their all for the good cause and rising to yet higher attributes as they pass before us and the brilliant paragraphs of the courtly clarendon or the chester modern estimates of forester it seems like a procession of born sovereigns while the more pungent epithets of contemporary wit only familiarize but do not mar the fame of cromwell cleveland's caesar and a clown william the conqueror waller young harry vane fiery tom fairfax and king pym but among all these there is no peer of hampton of him who came not from courts or camps but from the tranquil study of his davila from that thoughtful retirement which was for him as for his model colligny the school of all noble virtues came to find himself at once a statesman and a soldier receiving from his contemporary clarendon no affectionate critic the triple crown of historic praise as being the most able resolute and popular person in the kingdom who can tell how changed the destiny of england had the earl of bedford's first compromise with the country party succeeded and hampton become the tutor of prince charles or could this fight at chalgrove field issue differently and hampton survive to be general instead of essex and protector in place of cromwell but that may not be had hampton's earlier counsels prevailed rupert never would have ventured on his night foray had his next suggestions been followed rupert never would have returned from it those failing hampton has come gladly followed by gunter and his dragoons outstripping the tardy essex to dare all and die in vain does gunter perish beside his flag in vain does cross his horse being killed under him spring in the midst of battle on another in vain does that great-spirited little sir samuel luke the original of hedderbras get thrice captured and thrice escape for hampton the hope of the nation is fatally shot through the shoulder with two carbine balls in the first charge the whole troop sees it with dismay essex comes up as usual too late and the fight of chalgrove field is lost 
End of section 5. This recording is in the public domain.